his voice, isn't it? Bless your heart, Pastor. We love you. We're grateful you're here today, and you look good. In fact, you look better than you have in a while. So maybe God is causing all these things to work together good because it's improving your looks. Bless your heart. We'll continue, all of us, aren't we? We're going to be faithful in praying him back into the pulpit, preaching with the vigor and the anointing and the unction of the Lord God. Well, our text today is Psalm chapter 4, 1 through 8. Psalm chapter 4, 1 through 8. And our subject is this, key steps to abiding peace and joy. Key steps to abiding peace and joy. Psalm chapter 4, 1 through 8. Verse 1, hear me what I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Say, have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O you sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? You could translate, how long would you love worthlessness and seek after deception and sin? But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up thou the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their grain and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only maketh me to dwell in safety. Let's pray together. Holy and blessed God, we love you, Father. And we're grateful for being numbered in that number that love you and love your word. And we're fully cognizant, Father, it's all by grace, by your sovereign hand. Thank you that we're here today in the auditorium and those around the globe that listen in as well. I pray, Father, that this be a time when your name alone is lifted up. I pray, Father, to that end that you would hide me like a garment and wear me like a glove for your glory, Father, first and foremost, for your glory. And then secondly, Lord, that we would be edified through the nurture and the admonition of your word. Thank you, Father, for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen <clears throat> and amen. A psalm is a lament. 
written through a difficult time. It was not written while David was in the palace. This is after he had been deposed. He's out in the Judean wilderness somewhere. All those vast armies of well-trained soldiers, Israeli forces that he had trained and led in battle, victorious battles time and again, they're now under the leadership of Absalom. Ahithophel, formerly the counselor to David, is now in league with Absalom. And Absalom is amassing the troops and getting ready to go and planning what he thought would be a swift coup d'etat, killing his father, wiping out that small band that was following David, thus assuring himself the kingship of Israel. So here is this deposed, anointed by God the Father King, hidden away in the Judean wilderness. And likely this psalm uh, maybe was written in the evening time, sitting on the side of one of those Judean hills out there in the wilderness. Maybe in the ledge in front of a cave. No palace guards. No sumptuous fare. Having been fed with contributions as he traveled through the countryside from the people around. Here he is. King of Israel, yet deposed. And he writes this psalm, obviously through a very diff- during a very difficult time. And it's one thing for him to be in battle, which he's accustomed to. It's quite another to be pursued as a criminal, so to speak, by your own son leading the armies that you yourself have trained. Tough time. Not only militarily, of course, because of the threat of those soldiers, well-trained, but the heartbreak of this issue with Absalom. So he pins these lines. We're going to examine this psalm and see if we can discern how David responds during an absolutely difficult, heart-rendering period of time. First, take note of verse 1. Hear me what I call, O God of my righteousness. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Notice that David makes no claim to any righteousness of his own. And second, he doesn't go before the Lord and say, Lord, remember me, I'm the one you anointed to be king, and this is not right. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, Lord, hear me, have mercy upon me. It's good instruction for all of us. It doesn't make any difference what, what we are by title or position or monetary or material status or not. It's the same thing. Oh, God, have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Humbly going 
But the paradox is this. While we humbly go, we can at the same time boldly go. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. <laughs> wow. Servants going boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And if we were to do a study just on peace and joy, just that, peace and joy, from the biblical perspective, we would find that contrary to popular opinion, what people think, that neither peace nor joy are conditioned by circumstance, situation, or season. Okay, let me say it again. Neither peace nor joy is conditioned by circumstance, situation, or season. It has nothing to do with any of that. Because it's a gift from God to the redeemed person, uniquely, specifically, and individually. It's a gift from the Father, peace and joy. And if we were to do then a study on grace, we would find that it's not a dynamic power to do what we want to do, but rather it's a dynamic power, a supernatural enablement for us to do the will of God. And it's all level ground. Because anyone, regardless of position or whatever, for them to do the will of God, for me to do the will of God, for you to do the will of God, it requires grace. Lots of grace. So, from that, can we deduce safely that since it is the will of God that His peace rule in our hearts and for each of us to experience the fullness of His joy, season in and season out, that we can know for certain, can we not, that His grace is sufficient for us to experience His fullness and joy, season in and season out, regardless of the circumstance, situation. Is that true? You know, I don't believe in reincarnation, Pastor. But if I did, I'd ask the Lord, let me come back and say, black preacher. Because those people say, amen. And I've been in those places, and I love it. You about preach yourself to death, though. I mean, you wear yourself out. But man, of course, if it's his will for me to be filled with fullness of joy and peace, and you as well, that his grace is sufficient, regardless of the season, to put us in that frame of reference, right? Peace and joy and fullness thereof. It has nothing to do with this passing world. It's hard, isn't it? The question is this, though. Since God's grace is sufficient, and it's his will for us to be filled with peace and joy, and abundantly so, that peace ruling in our hearts, are there some things that we need to do to cooperate with what he intends to do in each of us? Because I'll bet you, your experience may be somewhat like mine. 
It's not always that so that I've been filled with peace. It's not always been so that I've been filled with joy. So what steps can we do to experience fullness of joy, cooperating with the grace of God, the only source of peace and joy, that we can ensure that we can have fullness of peace and joy, season in and season out, regardless, come what may. First of all, we can recognize that for the child of God, the absence of peace and joy is a spiritual anomaly. I'm going to say that again. For the child of God, that be you, that would be me, all of us, the absence of peace and joy is a spiritual anomaly. What is an anomaly? It's a deviation from what should be. It's, it's something that's uh, not in keeping with what was intended. So if we don't have peace and we don't have joy, according to the will of God, that is a spiritual anomaly. It's a deviation from what he intends for us to have as our daily experience. We've got to recognize that. Wait a minute, I don't have peace and joy. That's an anomaly. That's a deviation from what God intends for us to experience. Anomaly. But notice that I did not say abnormal. An anomaly? Yes. But it's not abnormal. Not abnormal. What's the difference? Well, Biblically, while it's according to the will of God that the absence of peace and joy in a believer's life is an anomaly, experientially, for many of us, if not most of us, the presence of abiding joy and peace seasoning and seasoned out is relatively abnormal. Are we together? The will of God, according to the will of God, it's an anomaly if you and I do not have peace and joy. He intends for us to have peace and joy because we trust in Him. And if we're not having it, it's spiritually abnormal for us, according to the will of God, not to have it. Remember that the only source of peace and joy is the Lord. It doesn't come from anywhere else. Psalm 4, verse 7. Thou hast put gladness in my heart. Thou hast put gladness in my heart. No one else, but thou alone, Lord. Psalm 16, 11. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Nowhere else. It's interesting, in, G, uh, in John 15, 11, Jesus, when he speaks of joy in us, it's in relationship to his word. He said, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full, directly related to this, this word. He's provided for that, that peace and joy, 
justified by faith. We have peace with God. Walking with God, we have peace from God. He bought it with his blood. Philippians 4, 7 says, The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That is interesting, isn't it? The peace of God, which passes all understanding. Why does it pass all understanding? Better question is, when does it pass all understanding? I'll tell you when it passes all understanding. When no one in the earth can understand why you would be filled with peace and joy because you're in the biggest mess they've ever seen. And they say, wow, what is it with you? Why are you so peaceful? Why do you have so much joy? Are, are you not aware of what's going on in your life or in your family or in your job or in this country? That's when it passes understanding. They can understand that because they've not tapped into the source through the blood of Jesus like you and I are. So we've got to recognize what God's will is concerning peace and joy for us. And it's an anomaly for us not to have it. It's an abnormal We don't. Secondly, we've got to recognize that the source of the absence of peace and joy is not outside of the believer. Say that again. The absence of peace and joy is not outside of you or me. The source of it, the cause of it, is not outside of you and it's not outside of me. So there's no use looking around and saying, well, what's the matter with you folks? Why don't I have joy? What's the matter with you? I don't have peace. That's a waste. Because the source of it, being the, the source of the absence, is not outside me or thee. It's individual. It's unique. It's not situational. It's not related to the circumstances at the end but it's provided by a sovereign hand that's over all circumstances, situations, seasons, period. And he says, I want you to have it. I sent my son to die for you so you could. I put my Holy Spirit into you to facilitate it. That's my will for you. That you be abnormal as far as the world's concerned experientially. And not suffer the anemic anomaly anomaly, excuse me, of the absence of it. And I'll tell you something. That peace is past its understanding. Maybe we're in a tough time and we got the peace that passes understanding and joy. It may be one of the greatest opportunities to witness we ever have. One of my pastors is a fellow named Don. He spent his life in law enforcement. Last portion of his career was a parole officer. The man he dealt with, uh, a probation officer. He dealt with the drugs of society a lot of times, sure. But he was a good man. He came to church regularly with his wife. She was a godly woman. And up on a Sunday, I preached uh, from the text that had the passage about in Romans, about Paul referring to him as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Monday morning, 
knock on my study door. I said, come in. It was Don. He stepped in the door, and I could see the tears rolling down his face. And you know what he said to me? And I quote, he said, Pastor, I want to become a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, well, come on in here. Come on in here. And I shared the gospel again with him. I said, now, I can't pray for you, buddy, but I'll pray for you in this regard. You've got to pray yourself. Surrender your life to the Lord. And he did. And I'm going to tell you, it was a real deal. This guy loved the Lord Jesus, and he began to grow. And Don was one of those guys, when he smiled, it just embraced his whole face, you know. He was just a wonderful guy and growing like a weed in the Lord Jesus. And some time passed, and he had a real serious heart attack. And they rushed him down to ER. I had him there in ER hooked up to everything. And his golf crony buddy, a real close friend, came charging in there to see him. Here's old Don hooked up everything and just smiled at him. He said, Don, Don, are you okay? I'm so good. Don says, hey, brother, it's okay. Everything's fine. The Lord is in control of this. And, you know, if he wants to take me home today, it's, all, it's sure all right because I know where I'm going. And, and if he is pleased to leave me here, well, we'll play golf some more together. This guy just looked at him. Don, several weeks later, was completely well, back out playing. This brother came up to him. This man came up to him. He said, you know something, Don? You know what you said to me down there in that ER department when you was hooked up to all that mess? He had said, if some preacher dude had said to me what you said to me, I would have blown it off as preacher talk. But because you said it, it gripped my heart and mind. I can't forget it. Adversity, yet peace that passes understanding and joy on top of that. And somebody's looking at you and say, good grief, what you have, I don't have. What's it all about. He's with Jesus now. But you know something? If the believer's peace and joy comes and goes, season in and season out, you know, boy, we're well today and we're happy today and we're filled with joy and what a great day to be in the Lord. And then, wham, life hits us like a tsunami. We're down in the mouth. Oh, boy. You know what? The world looks at us and says, well, you know, they're no different than we are. All those Christians, they don't have anything that we don't have. Because look at them. Look at him right now. Look at her right now. They don't see any difference. Could be that their attitude would be like Satan's was toward Job. Job chapter 1, The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the earth. Isn't that an incredible testimony from the Lord? There's none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and eschews evil. 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Hath God, doth God, Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? He blessed the work of his hands. His substance is increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all he hath and he'll curse you to your face. And you know something? If we're like that, we're joy boys singing the praises and everything when times are good. But in the valleys that our brother sung about, we're walking around with our chin on the chest like everybody else, whining. They think the same thing about us. Fair weather Christians, maybe. We have no appetite for the stormy seasons. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, if we have a garden, rose garden experience, there's not any thorns in our life. Well, there's no powerful witness in that, is it? We're just better off. We're just uh, luckier or something or other like that. But peace and joy in the season of adversity is a powerful witness. A.W. Tozer, now with Jesus, died in 1963. He wrote this, the Christian owes it, now hear this, the Christian owes it to the world to be supernaturally joyful. In this day of un- universal apprehension, where men's hearts are failing them for fear of those things which are coming upon the earth, we Christians are strategically placed to display a happiness that is not of this world and to exhibit a tranquility that will be a little bit of heaven here on earth. <laughs> By the way, he, that wasn't written yesterday. It was written before he died in 1963. Look at what we got going on now. But he says we owe it to the world to display peace and joy. And God has strategically placed us to do just that, to reflect his glory in a way that is completely past understanding to the world. Remember that I said that the absence now, going back, the absence of abiding peace and joy in a believer is an anomaly, according to the will of God. But not abnormal as far as the experience of the majority, okay? An anomaly, it's absence, but not abnormal. Tozer said that about this about that. Most modern Christians live sub-Christian lives. Most Christians are not joyful persons because they are, are not holy persons. And they're not holy persons because they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're not filled with the Holy Spirit because they're not separated persons. That's why the word says, come out from among them and be separate from them. So, how can a believer deliver himself or herself from that anomaly? Experientially abnormal of abiding peace and joy, season in and season out. Well, one key step is this. 
we've got to repent of the root of pride that keeps us thinking that we deserve a better lifestyle than we have. That's what Paul, Paul said. Don't compare yourselves with yourselves. That's not wise. Because you know what the flesh does? It always compares up. Well, I don't have what they have. I can't sing like Roger, even though I have a prettier head <laughs> or whatever. You know, but compare. <laughs> when you want them to say amen, they say it at the wrong time, Pastor. They need a lot of training. Pride always, that rudeness, we deserve better. I ought to have this, I ought to have that, and I don't have this, I don't have that. And we've got to repent of that. Because remember, the Lord created us. He named us in grace, chosen to be elect through the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ before the foundation of the earth. And we are strategic, and what we are in this life is what he intends for us to be if we're walking in him. Because you're put where you're put for his purposes to bring him glory. Matthew 13, Jesus said, the disciple is not above his master. How much more shall call them of his household? If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Like everybody else, they just think you're one of them. I guess that's a way to avoid hatred. Is look like a worldling. Behave like a worldling, etc. The servant's not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted you, me, they will also persecute, etc. Persecute you, etc. Second Timothy three twelve. I guess it's a promise, though. It says, "Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution." We're going to have trouble in this life. There's nothing that come to you or me. Except what God allows. He's sovereign over our lives. But there's stuff going to come. What do we do about the stuff? Walk in peace and joy and trust through those valleys of life. And reflect his glory. If our lifestyle is what God intended to be. is separate ones. Separated from the worldly stuff. Then we are going to have persecution. And by the way. If you have a penchant for personality, for popularity, be very, very careful. If you really like being popular, find that welling up in you, want everybody to like you and all of that, be careful. Luke 6, 26 says, Woe, Jesus is speaking, Woe unto you when men shall speak well of you. They did that of the false prophets. The world spoke well and does speak well of false prophets. 
Be careful, Jesus said, when they speak well of you. So adversity or persecution can be a mark of faithful discipleship. But we also must in that regard be very carefully discerning because adversity could be the fruit of our own sinful silliness and disobedience. Because the Lord used adversity sometimes to turn us back into his will and to his way. Then we have to recognize that our adverse, adverse experiences that our pride keeps telling us we don't deserve may be the very things that God intends to use to grow us in grace and bless us in grace. Note Psalm 4.1. Well, first of all, what does that tell us about David? Notice the past tense, thou hast enlarged, thou hast, past tense, thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. This wasn't David's first rodeo. This wasn't the first of warfare. It wasn't the first challenge in his life. First time his son was after him, of course. But he knew what God had done in the past. And I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful to have a history in the trenches with the Lord God. It wasn't pleasant when we were there. But it was profitable to be there with him and experience him. So adversity rightly responded to is an opportunity to grow in grace. And it's an equipping process. Remember David's preparation progress? Bear, line, bingo, giant. So as we go through the trenches of adversity, rightly responding to the Lord and experiencing his grace and provision in the process, we grow in grace and equips us for the next trench. And ladies and gentlemen, I guarantee you there's going to be more trenches come to each of us throughout our lives. It's good to have some history in the trenches with the Lord. Darby's new translation of that verse says it this way. In pressure, thou hast enlarged me. That's that's contrary to what we're thinking. In pressure, thou hast enlarged me. You know, we normally think about pressure as squeezing and and, and reducing in size and and or volume. But no, the Lord uses pressure. That word is a Hebrew word. It means a straight, tight place. Lord uses pressure to spiritually enlarge us. He spiritually equip us. And I'll guarantee you, popularity is not nearly as effective in producing spiritual growth as is adversity. You know that. If you walk with Jesus any time at all, you know that. Popularity and ease is not near as effective in growing us spiritually. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I'm afraid that all of the grace I have gotten out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. What do I not owe to the hammer, to the anvil, to the fire? And the file. Affliction, he says, is the best bit of furniture in my house. And he knew wherewith he spoke. Most 
highly printed pulpiteer on the planet. He suffered from horrendous bouts of depression. He died at 59 years of age. James says, count trials as occasions for joy. That's hard to do, isn't it? I love our pastor. This guy walks with God, and I know it, and I've known it for years. But I don't, he might have, now Nora can testify to this, but the first, when he first hit that floor in that shower, he didn't, probably didn't say, oh, joy. It's hard. It's hard for you, it's hard for me. Oh, joy. But that's what trials, remember, they didn't come except what God allows. It's an opportunity to grow in grace. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, know this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Patience, let her have her perfect work so that ye may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. 2 Corinthians 1, the Lord uses afflictions to equip us. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we have ourselves been comforted by God. So we go through these adverse situations, and the God of all comfort is comforting us, and we have that peace that abides, and we come out joyful, realizing what we've experienced with the Lord in the trenches of life. Well... Certainly it's a benefit to us. But that doesn't mean God's through with that experience yet. Because that experience of his grace was equipping us that we can comfort someone else in the same situation. The principle is this. That we minister to others whereby we have been ministered unto. Then there's an aspect of rewards. Luke 6, blessed are ye when men shall hate you, when they shall separate you from their company. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes this is a real blessing too, because you might want to be included in something God doesn't want you to be included in anyway. When, men, when they separate you and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward, reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner they did the prophets. First Peter chapter 4. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing is happening unto you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be also glad with exceeding joy. It's interesting, isn't it? Peter uh, presents suffering as a cause for present joy and a reason for future glory. All sandwiched together 
in that verse. So, remember, regardless of season, condition, situation, you find yourself in, good or bad, whatever it is, the source and supply of perfect peace and full joy are one and the same. He never changes. That source never is depleted. There never is a, a warning saying, now, you can't use quite as much grace because this is a tough, dry, spiritual season. The source never diminishes the source of peace and joy. Always the same. Isaiah 26.3 Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. And David said, on that high hill, watching the valley, watching for dust on the horizon, the sign of advancing troops that were planning on taking him out and his small band with him. What did he say? Verse 8, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. <laughs> for thou, Lord, only maketh me to dwell in safety. And your supply, peace, joy, and grace is just as stable because it's in the hand of a sovereign father who brought you, bought you and I with the blood of his son. Holy Father, we love you. <laughs> and Lord,